Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to open your word today, and when we do that, we want to do so humbly. We want to do so asking for your Holy Spirit to impress our hearts and minds, to understand and to know and to receive the things that you want us to receive. May the words that are spoken here be your words from on high, and we thank you for the word. In Jesus' name, amen. As the curator of an archaeological museum, we focus on the archaeology of the Bible. And over the years, we've had different exhibits at our museum that focus on various aspects of archaeology. We've had a coin exhibit that has focused on the history of coinage in the ancient world with wonderful, wonderful specimens, including the face of Julius Caesar on one of them and Alexander the Great on another and Tiberius Caesar, who was alive when Jesus was crucified, and Augustus, who was alive when Jesus was born and who issued the census that brought his parents, or his, yes, his father and mother to Bethlehem. But um, I don't think I've ever been as excited about an exhibit such as the one that we're preparing right now, and it's been a learning experience for me. Uh, we've been working on it for over a year, and I want to share with you this morning a few highlights from that uh, research that we've been involved with as we are trying to document the history of the Bible. Some years ago, I, I learned that an alumnus of Southern had been privately and very quietly collecting Bibles, Reformation uh, uh, books, uh, pamphlets, music, uh, commentaries, he has about five different collections. I can't get into all the details right now, um, but I can tell you that when we went out to his home in Washington State a few uh, months ago, uh, we were so overwhelmed by the boxes of books that we realized we would have to empty out the entire museum in order to display even half of what he had available to us. And so the biggest challenge for us the last few months has been to pick and choose what it is that we want to exhibit. He became fascinated with history while he was a student abroad at Newbold College, even though he did most of his training at Southern. Today he's a physician, and he fell in love with not only history, but he fell in love with scripture, and he fell in love with the history of the Bible. The Bible that you're seeing on the screen right now is one of the Bibles that will be on exhibit in January, and it is the first edition, 1611 edition, of the King James Version Bible. There's only 160 complete King James Version Bibles in institutions and private collections around the world. One of them will be on display at our museum. And uh, the page you're looking at is the beautifully um, uh, artistically rendered page that introduces the New Testament. The King James Version Bible transformed the English language. With some say Shakespeare helped in that process as well, but perhaps two other books had an even greater impact, the King James Version Bible and the Common Book of Prayer, which became, which we will have displayed right next to the King James Bible there in the exhibit as the centerpiece of the exhibit. It transformed the English language, but it did more than that. It has transformed people's hearts for the last 
400 and some years. It is still today, even though we have many English translations, it is still today the number one best-selling version of the Bible. And it is still today, the Bible, I should say, is still today, every single year since it was first printed on Gutenberg's press in Mainz, Germany, it is still the best-selling book in the world today. And so we have a, a heritage to celebrate and a heritage to commemorate and a heritage that also gives us a great deal of responsibility. And today I wanna share with you some of the stories about some of these Bibles and some of the reformers that brought to us what we have today. But before we do that, I wanna go to the Word of God itself because it is that which sparked the Reformation. And I want to read to you a few passages that speak about the importance of God's word. One of them is found by the first writers of the Bible, Moses. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32, or you can see it on the screen as well, verses 46 through 47. These are the last words that Moses is speaking before he will die on Mount Nebo and the Israelites will cross over into the promised land. Now as a pastor, I have sometimes had the privilege of being with someone in the hospital or in their home in their last hours of their life. And I can tell you that those things that are spoken in those moments are usually very carefully chosen and are usually very profound. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel. These are his last words. This is the end of the book which are his last words, the second law, as Deuteronomy means. And this is what he says. He says, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today. How many? All of the words which you shall command your children to be careful to observe. All the words of this law, the Hebrew word there, of course, is Torah. It doesn't only mean law as in the Ten Commandments. It means instructions. It means the word of God. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you shall cross over the Jordan to possess. So Moses is saying to the Israelites, you need to repeat these things over and over and over again to your children. You are to live by the word because this word is your life and it will prolong your days in the land that you will possess. You know, when we read that in Scripture, we have to remind ourselves that we are also heading towards the promised land, right? And today, we can read these same words of Moses and we can apply those same words to our lives as well. By this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which we will cross over soon to possess by the grace of God. Jesus often went back to the writers of the Old Testament and he lived by those words. Jesus was one who was the word, as we will read in a moment, but he was one who also lived by the word of God. He submitted himself and he subjected himself to the word of God. One of the great examples of this is in Luke chapter four, verse four where uh, right after his baptism, Jesus is being led out into the wilderness. 
And there he spends 40 days and 40 nights. You remember the story. And at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights, he's not eaten anything. He's not drunken anything. And suddenly uh, the devil is there in his weakest moment to tempt him. And Jesus responds to each one of those temptations, not by his own authority and by his own words, but he responds in Luke 4, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus, you see, was the living word, but he quoted the word of God because of its authority in this situation and in every situation when tempted by the devil. In fact, he continues that whole pattern all the way through. In John 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. So the scriptures testify of God. They testify of Jesus. They speak of him. In John 17, 17, the passage that was just read so beautifully to us, we read another very important aspect. Jesus says, as he's praying for his disciples, and we can apply that as well to us today, he could be praying this prayer for you and I, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. And finally, even in his last moments, as Moses had his last moments, as he's there at the burning bush, I'm sorry, as he's there on the cross, and as he's there in that particular situation, what does Jesus do as he's hanging on the cross? He quotes from Psalm 22, which originally pointed towards the manner of his death in a prophetic sense, and he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people who were there, who were steeped in scripture, knew and would have known what Jesus was saying. And even those who were not steeped in scripture, like the Roman centurion, saw the manner in which Christ took his death and was converted as a result. John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Do you see the connection between Moses here and Jesus? If Jesus is the word and the word is life, then Jesus also will be life, right? Jesus has shared with us the way to life, and the life was the light of men. The text goes on to say, however, that there was also darkness and that the light had pierced through the darkness. And so in this world, we can also expect darkness as well. A year ago, I had the privilege of doing something that I'd never done before. I've lived in Europe. I've spent many, many summers traveling through Europe. We usually, on the way to Israel during our excavations and other projects, we will do a stop over in Europe for three weeks or, or longer and we will um, visit various places. My wife is an art historian, so we have to visit all of the churches with all of the art. And uh, I say have to, it's a privilege for me. I, I'm not sure our children completely appreciated it when they were uh, four and six years old. We used to have to bribe them with gelato uh, in Italy, 
um, which wasn't the healthiest thing, but it worked. So anyway, uh, but last year, my wife and I, we had a big Bible conference. The church, the, uh, our world church, had a big Bible conference in Rome, of all places. And while we were in Rome, we focused as scholars. There were about uh, 350 scholars gathered from different universities around the various divisions of the world church, and we focused on eschatology, on last day events, and on prophecy. And it was a wonderful place to do that. And then during the day, we would visit um, different archaeological sites, the Colosseum and the Forum in Rome and, and various places, the Mamertine prison where, uh, where Peter um, died. And, and so we have, we have uh, so many uh, interesting, interesting experiences there. But for me, the highlight, maybe because I'd seen those places before, for me, the highlight was a trip that we took after the conference with a number of our colleagues and led by Gerard Domstigt and Laurel, his wife, up to um, the Waldensian hills and mountains. Uh, we went to Torre Pelice and we, there we, we walked through the valleys and up into the mountains and we were able to see some of the amazing things that I had not seen before. I had been to these mountains many times, I had skied on these mountains many times, but I'd never actually thought and, and been to the places uh, where the Waldensians spent so much of their time. We saw houses that, that um, were, some of them rebuilt to commemorate the time period that they spent here. And one of the seminaries or one of the schools where the uh, Waldensian young people were trained to go out and to be witnesses for Christ and for the word of God. And you read the stories of these Waldensian missionaries, and it is quite remarkable. And I'll share with you some quotes here in a moment, but as we walked through these valleys and up through these mountains, one of the things that we did one Sabbath afternoon, a few individuals walked up to the cliffs up in the mountains where we know from history and we know from the accounts that have been given where many Waldensians lost their lives as they were flung over the cliffs. Here's a monument that is commemorating one of these places where the armies of Rome came up and where they were flung over the edge uh, of the cliff and died uh, defending their faith. And we, we witnessed these things and we were able to reflect on these things and we were able to think about what it was that gave these young people and older people and families the commitment that they had and again and again and again, we came back to the one answer, Scripture, and the gospel message that they were able to receive through knowing and understanding the Word of God. That Sabbath, I had the humble privilege to have been asked to preach to our group and to other Adventists who were other Christians who were gathered there together in that church. It was a Waldensian church that I was able to speak at, and I had a different experience for the first time in my life uh, this is not me up there, but I got to speak in a, let's say, an elevated pulpit. It was kind of a scary thing, actually, to walk up the steep stairs and to stand up there. I don't like high places. My preference would be down to be down there where you are all at, um, but that was where I was preaching from. And what was remarkable to me was the centrality of the pulpit in this early pre-Protestant church 
because you see what we have in Catholicism before this time in Catholic architecture, what is at the center? It's the altar, right? The altar is at the center where the mass is being performed, but in this pre-Protestant, I say pre-Protestant because this went way back, these were some of the earliest Protestants, but but really when we think of the Reformation, we think of Luther and we think of Calvin and we think of many of the others, but this particular group decided that the Bible and the proclamation of the word would be the center of everything. And so they lifted not the preacher, but the word of God up before the people. And week after week after week preached the gospel. And by the way, they preached that gospel on the seventh day Sabbath. They were known as the Sabbatati. And here they are. By the way, notice that beautiful piece of art there on the side. Uh, We have here a light, and uh, many of you don't read Latin like I don't read Latin, so I looked up the translation, and it says, a light shines in the darkness. This was what the Word of God was doing for the first time for this people, and they were transformed. We read from a number of different sources the impact of the Waldensians as they went out. These Waldenses, says Renaris, were in nearly every country. Another person, Sandera, says they are multiplied throughout all lands. They have infested a thousand cities, says Caesarius. They spread their contagion through almost the whole Latin world. You can see that person was not really very favorable towards the Waldensians. And Newburg, they became like the sand of the sea without number. Young people, we read in great controversy, placing bits and pieces of hand-copied scripture sewn into their clothing so that when they could go to the universities and the cities of influence, they could pass on the word of God to that soul that might be open to hearing the word of God, risking their own lives in many cases to allow the word of God to transform someone else's life. The great Protestant theme, sola scriptura, the Bible alone, they stood on the imperative of that principle. And this principle is based on scripture itself because as we read through the New Testament, we find that this is precisely what Jesus and the apostles did over and over and over again. They relied on the scriptures that came before them. By one estimate, Otto Piper, who was a longtime professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary, there are over 2,688 quotes, not allusions, but quotes in the New Testament from the Old Testament. They were steeped in scripture and that scripture allowed them to continue the fulfillment of God's plan in the New Testament era. One of the things that we were able to do which was very moving was going into one of the caves up in the mountains where the Waldensians used to hide and this particular cave has a very tragic story in many ways as they were in this cave feeling fairly secure, what they didn't know was that the soldiers and the armies were coming from two sides. And and yes, they had blockaded the one side of the cave at the front entrance and, and, and that army would not have seen probably their place of refuge, but the army coming up from behind 
was able to see and discover where they were. And they lowered soldiers down to the, to, the, to the mouth of this cave and instead of pursuing the Waldensians who had gone down deeper into the cave, they decided to build up a fire in front of that entrance. And most Waldensians suffocated as a result of the smoke. And we're told by the historians that over 3,000 men, women, and 400 children died in that one incident. Giving up their lives rather than giving up their newfound truth in scripture. Castles, a historian, writes in his book, Christ and Antichrist, page 257, Meade has calculated from good authorities that in the war with the Albigenses and the Waldenses there perished of these people in France alone one million. And we, of course, have, we were in Switzerland when we were uh, visiting these places, and I should say in northern Italy when we were visiting these places, and they were in Switzerland as well. In the book, Great Controversy, we read this. The persecutions visited for many centuries upon this God-fearing people were endured by them with a patience and constancy that honored their Redeemer. Notwithstanding the crusades against them and the inhuman butchery to which they were suspected, they continued to send out their missionaries to scatter the precious truth. They were hunted to death, yet their blood watered the seed sown, and it failed not of yielding fruit. I want to share with you one of the most exciting moments last year that I had in going over this collection that will be on display at our museum. This is a picture, and I will not attempt to pronounce the French. My wife was the French major in college, and I was the German major in college, and so we've decided to share those responsibilities together. Um, but uh, she told me it's probably de Tappe, uh, something like that anyway that we should uh, pronounce this. At any way, this is, this is a, a, a New Testament that he was able to translate into French. And this was a New Testament that was printed around 1500. We don't even have the exact date for this New Testament. It was the first book, not just the first Bible, it was the first book ever to be printed in the French language. Not hand copied, but printed. Now this gentleman was a Catholic and he translated this Bible into the French from the Vulgate, the, the Latin translation, the official Bible of the Catholic Church. But it became a dear and precious book for the Waldensians. And they purchased these books and these books were part of, of their uh, existence. And one of these books will be on display. Here you can see the one that is in our exhibit. And inside the cover of this book, you will see a crest. That is the crest of the Queen Mother of France, the, the mother of Francois I, or Francis I, the King of France, who for a time protected the Waldensians, but then later, his mother, the Queen Mother, turned against them and sponsored and helped the persecutions of Rome against the Waldensians living in their valleys. Now, this particular book is interesting. You can't see it from the picture, but in the middle of the crest is a handwritten name. The owner of the book is handwritten her name there. Her name is Denise, and her last name is Guillaume. And we know that Guillaume is a Waldensian name. It's a very famous and well-known Waldensian name. And we can suspect that the person who owned this Bible 
was in fact a Waldensian. What is amazing about this Bible is it is only one of two in existence today. The other Bibles were all burnt and destroyed by the armies that came to destroy the people, but this one somehow survived. The only other Bible of this type is in the library in Nice, France, and uh, the owner of this book, uh, our alum, told me that when he was uh, at the auction uh, you know, bidding for this book, he was in a bidding war with the National Library of France. I don't know how he was able to purchase it, but we're thankful that it's in our collection now and not in the National Library of France. It's a little closer for us to see. A few years after this Bible was published, we have the Olivetan Bible. Olivetan was a Waldensian himself, and this is the first French Bible to be translated from the original Greek and Hebrew into the French language. Olivetan, he also went by another name, but that's how he was known. Olivetan was known for his deep spirituality and his fervor in the scriptures. And one thing that he did, which was quite amazing, is that he not only would translate this Bible in about two years from Greek and Hebrew into French, but he shared this Bible with a relative of his living in France, uh, and this relative was very impacted by the word of God, which he was able to read for the first time in the French language. It was a young cousin of Olivetan's, and this young cousin was so moved that he became a Protestant himself. He's known to us today as John Calvin, one of the best known Protestant reformers in existence today, and it just touches my heart to see how the Word of God and how the impact of the Word of God not only impacted people of more mature age, but also young people. Olivetan was in his 20s when he became a Protestant Christian. And in the introduction to this Bible, and we have the full edition of this Bible in our uh, collection, he writes the foreword to the Bible at the age of 25. It's an amazing thing when you think about it and the dedication that these men had to the message. Here's John Calvin. We often see these reformers in beards and we think of them as people with beards that are a bit more mature, but he was only 20 some years old when he became a Protestant. And here he is in, uh, in Geneva, uh, on the wall of Geneva uh, with all the other reformers. You know, Geneva is the capital of the Reformation and it was very interesting because the day, the Sabbath that I was preaching in 2018, in that Waldensian church in Torre Pellice, that very Sabbath, Pope Francis was in the capital of the Protestant Reformation in Geneva meeting with the Council of Churches to forward his agenda for ecumenism. Ironic, isn't it? What is also ironic is just a couple of years ago, Pope Francis asked for forgiveness of the Waldensians, the descendants of the Waldensians. They still have a church and they're still in several countries in the world, in Uruguay, Argentina, and in Europe as well. And he asked their apology and forgiveness. He apologized and asked for their forgiveness from what had happened so many years ago. And, and I found what the Waldensians, how the Waldensians responded was very interesting. 
They said, we cannot accept an apology for something that did not occur to ourselves. This occurred to people that do not exist anymore. And they occurred by a church and leaders that do not exist anymore. And it is to them that the apology is owed, not to us in the 21st century. Very interesting, very interesting. Of course, a contemporary of Calvin was Martin Luther. And we have so many, much material in the collection of Martin Luther that um, we, don't, we, we had to be very selective of what we use. Martin Luther, of course, was very much incensed by the indulgences that he experienced uh, being sold in Europe at the time where he was there. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Tetzel, a German uh, monk who went around selling these indulgences and the translation, of course, some of you have heard this before, but the translation of what Tetzel would say as he went from village to village was, as soon as the coin and the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. An indulgence, of course, was a sheet of paper that you could purchase from the Catholic Church that ensured a, a, a reduction of time or perhaps even a complete uh, uh, dispensation of time in purgatory, that in-between state between hell and heaven. And um, Luther was quite incensed about this because he believed it robbed the common people of something and gave them a false sense of assurance that their sins were forgiven and that this was something that even the Catholic Church itself could do. And so in 1517, 500 years ago, two years ago, Martin Luther nailed the famous 95 Theses on the doors of Wittenberg. We have recreated the doors of Wittenberg in our museum, and there you will find an original copy of the 95 Theses, not the one that he posted on the door, but he, these were later printed in Latin and sent out in these pamphlets by the thousands all over Europe and sparked the Reformation like nothing else had. And I have a couple here that I want to read to you in English if uh, you may not be able to see these, but uh, just think about Luther's time, think about our time, and think about how this would come across in a politically correct age. It wasn't politically correct then either. Notice number 21. Hence the preachers of indulgences are wrong when they say a man is absolved and saved from every penalty by the Pope's indulgences. 27, it is mere human talk to preach that the soul flies out of purgatory immediately. The money clinks in the collection box. It is certainly possible that when the money clinks in the collection box, greed and avarice can increase, but the intercession of the church depends on the will of God alone. Christians should be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the preachers of indulgences, he would rather have the Basilica of St. Peter reduced to ashes than built with the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. The wanton preaching of pardons makes it difficult even for learned men to redeem respect due to the Pope for the slanders of at least the shrewd questionings of the laity. And he closes in 94 and 95, Christians should be exhorted to seek earnestly to follow Christ, their head, through penalties, deaths, and hells, and let them thus be more confident of entering heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false a false assurance of peace. You see, for Luther, who had been raised with that, without any peace, 
It was the righteousness of God and righteousness by faith that gave him the assurance of salvation. Today, of course, indulgences are still something that you can obtain. A few years ago, my wife was in her home country of Brazil and was traveling through Rio de Janeiro. She was in the airport when she saw all these young people all over speaking different languages and wondering uh, what on earth was going on, why there were so many people flying from all parts of the world descending on Rio in 2013. So she asked one of them and they said, oh, you haven't heard? This is the World Youth Congress for the Catholic Church and Francis is gonna be here. And this was what happened. This, was, this is from um, uh, CBS News. That was the same event. From the Vatican, get time off in purgatory by following the Pope on Twitter. So now you can get an indulgence, even if you're not at the youth conference and didn't see the Pope, you can get an indulgence by simply tweeting something on Twitter and seeing him there and you are able to have forgiveness for your sins. Now this caused such a, those 95 theses caused such a disturbance within the church that it uh, caused a debate that took place in Leipzig in 1519, just two years later. In this debate, Johann von Eck, the, the champion scholar of, of Catholicism, and of course Luther was Catholic as well, uh, debated together in this German city from June to July. And von Eck later on wrote his arguments out in a book of which we also have an edition uh, at the museum as well. Uh, probably the most famous tract against Luther that had the most wide distribution going through 91 different editions in a number of different languages before 1600. It made it the best known Catholic polemical handbook of the 16th century. And of course, the Flugschriften or the pamphlets that Luther and the Protestants were publishing were also going out at the same time. And there was a battle between the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation that was taking place at that time. So Johann von Eck also was extremely responsible, was extraordinarily responsible for, for inciting Leo X, the Pope at the time, for excommunicating Luther. And we have an original copy of that as well. This is the excommunication bull, Desit Romanum Pontificum. And this is what it says. Martin Luther himself, or Martin himself, it gives us grievous sorrow and perplexity to say this, the slave of a deprived mind has scorned to revoke his errors within the prescribed interval. He has now been declared a heretic. This was, by the way, after his trial at Worms. And so also others, whatever their authority and rank, who have become followers of Martin's pernicious and heretical sect. He is describing Protestants today as well, by the way, in this particular excommunication bull, because if you are a Protestant, you are also part of that pernicious and heretical sect. Luther in his commentary on the book of Roman, uh, Galatians, and this is an English uh, edition that we have published in 1521, he says this at one point, he had these table talks around his table in his home, and in one of those table talks he said, if I had my way about it, they would republish only those of my books which have doctrine, which have the teachings of scripture. 
My Galatians, for instance, Luther considered this book to be one of his most important one because it was through the study of both Romans and Galatians that he came to the truth of righteousness by faith. That's another, by the way, major uh, tenet of Protestantism, sola fide, by faith alone. And here's just a quote from Galatians 2, verse 20. Many of you know this uh, verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For the first time in Luther's life, the beatings in his cell in the monastery to purge out sin from his flesh now ceased and he could turn to a Christ who loved him and who accepted him and who forgave his sins simply on the basis of claiming the promises of the word of God. There was no one he had to go through anymore. It was only through the merits of Jesus Christ. After his trial, he was whisked away by friends and placed under protection in the Wattburg Castle. This is the room in which Luther translated the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew uh, into the vernacular. He was very dependent on Erasmus who had produced a Greek uh, version of the New Testament he was kind of a mentor to Luther and to others of that day. And uh, this is the resulting uh, Bible that he printed together with artwork. So art and the word were published together. And here, by the way, this is from the book of Revelation, a dear book for us today. Um, here we have a wonderful piece of art. I will read the passage that goes along with the art and I want you to look at the art as I'm reading the passage and see how this looks. By the way, these are woodcuts done by Cranach the Elder, one of the major friends and benefactors of Luther who illustrated the Reformation and illustrated Luther and gave it a life of its own uh, as the war between Protestants and Catholics uh, were waged both through script and also through art. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, this is Revelation chapter 10, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, you see the sun radiating from this angel? His face was like the sun and his, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. Verses, verse nine, so I went to the angel and said to him, this is John speaking, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it and it will make your summer stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. You see John there eating the book? Should we not too be eating the book of life today? Should we not be consuming scripture and allowing scripture to influence our life today as well? It certainly did this for Tyndale. William Tyndale, as Luther was doing his work in Germany, Tyndale was doing his work in England. Tyndale could speak seven languages and was proficient in both Hebrew and Greek. He was a priest whose intellectual gifts would have made him a great success in the church. But he had one longing in his life, one compulsion, to teach English men and women the good news of justification by faith. Tyndale had discovered the truth, this truth, when he read Erasmus's Greek edition of the New Testament. 
And what better way to share this message to others than to also translate the Bible into the English language and to put it into their hands. In fact, this became Tyndale's passion. He summed it up this way, the way his uh, mentor Erasmus had summed it up. Christ desires his mysteries to be published abroad as widely as possible. I would that the Gospels and the epistles of Paul were translated into all languages of all Christian people that they might be able to be read and known. Do you know that there's 6,500 languages in the world today? And do you know that there are still thousands of languages that do not have the Scripture in that language? We've made tremendous progress in translating the Bible, but there are people groups in the world that do not have access to the Word of God. I was speaking to my colleague, uh, former colleague, now he's still my colleague, Dr. Carlos Martin, who taught uh, evangelism and world mission at our university for many years, and, and he reminded me last year, he says, there are still over two billion people in the world that have not even heard the name Jesus, let alone been exposed to the Word of God. Two billion people. What are we doing about those people? And we don't even have to go that far. We can just speak about our community here in Chattanooga. What are we doing to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? By the way, Tyndale's work was published, but it was published by others after his death. This is the so-called Matthew's Bible, named after uh, John Rogers, who took the pseudonym Thomas Matthew. Why did he take a pseudonym? Because he didn't want to be killed for producing this Bible. He used Tyndale's translation as much as he could, all of it from the New Testament, as much as he could because Tyndale never finished the Old Testament. Then he took Coverdale's work and, and incorporated that in there as well, and it was published. We have the complete copy that will be on display. It's beautiful, look at the artwork again, it's, it's wonderfully done. But even with the pseudonym, not only was Tyndale burned to the stake in 1536, John Rogers followed him in 1555. The reality of the producers of the Bible for the languages that you and I can read today was a great sacrifice, a sacrifice for truth and a sacrifice for the Word of God. I want to close with Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Nicholas Ridley had been a chaplain to King Henry VIII, a Tudor king in England. Henry VIII, as you recall, had established the Church of England in rebellion against Rome in some ways. Um, maybe that rebellion was not as, as uh, for the right reasons, but uh, at any rate. And Nicholas Ridley was the Bishop of London later on under his son Edward. He was first chaplain under Henry VIII and then later was Bishop of London. He was a preacher that was loved by his congregations because he preached the word of God in the English language that they could understand. And he loved to portray the truths that he taught. In his own household, he had daily readings of the Bible to which his members would flock and would come. Hugh Latimer, his close companion and friend in many ways, had become an influential pre preacher under King Edward's reign. King Edward was a boy king who only reigned for a few years, a sickly young man, but also a staunch Protestant. 
And Hugh Latimer was an earnest student of the Bible. Bishop of Worcester, he encouraged the scriptures to be known by others. But when Edward died and Lady Jane came to the throne and only reigned for nine days, and when Mary came down, Mary, we know her as Bloody Mary, Catholic, she became queen and it wasn't long before things began to change in England. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were placed on trial and when they refused to participate in the mass which they believed went against the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross, they suffered the fate of others that we already mentioned. In the original Fox's Book of Martyrs, probably one of the rarest things that we have in the collection, you find this depiction of their burning at the stake. In Oxford, in 1555, as he was being tied to the stake, this is what Ridley prayed. O Heavenly Father, I give unto thee most heartly, hearty thanks that thou hast called me to be a professor of thee even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. The the, this etching, this piece of art was completed only eight years after the event occurred. And most art historians believe that it's an accurate depiction because of the, the proximity that it has to the actual event. The etching that is in Fox's Book of Martyrs portrays the two men back to back next to each other. There are word bubbles that are associated with them and those word bubbles are encouraging. They're encouraging each other as they're about to be burned. Up on the tower behind them, I don't know if you can see that tower, there's another gentleman, his name is Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Westminster. And just a few, just less than a year later, he would follow them to death as well. He was in prison in that tower, by the way. Hugh Latimer is quoted as saying just before the flames would engulf them, play the man, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall see this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Sacrifice, determination, but more than that, a love for their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that could not be turned. And so my question for us today is, we visit these places that still commemorate this event in Oxford where most students are just glibly walking by, commemorating this event hundreds of years ago. Is the Reformation still something that is relevant after 500 years? Or is it just a misunderstanding? Is it something that still burns within our hearts? Not because we're protesting to be angry about something, but because we believe that what Jesus taught us in Scripture is true and that there is one way of salvation and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Is righteousness by faith still what we will believe today and preach today though the heavens fall. We're being told in many circles that the protest is over. 
But as a church today, have we not been called for such a time as this? And has this not also been foretold to us prophetically? And does that not give us more assurance that we have a role to play in the time in which we live? I'm reminded of the words in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. A precious passage to me personally. And that passage says that the grass withers, the flower fades. That is, the things of this world will wither and die. The movements that come and go will come and go. But the word of our God stands forever. But that word can only stand as the people of the book stand. As the people of God's word proclaim that word. As they teach it to their children as Moses instructed the children of Israel to do. And as we share it with others who need to hear that word. May God give us the courage. May God give us the faith of Jesus. Amen.